person who is to be saved. If you and I have deficient views or light views of sin, friends, then we are liable to have defective views regarding the means necessary for us to be saved. To put it another way, if we believe that the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden was simply partial and not total or radical, complete, then we're going to be most likely inclined to be satisfied with a salvation that's not only attributable to God, but also to who? To us. And that's a problem. To reiterate something from last week, J.C. Ryle, there's a lot of common sense in this statement. He wrote this. Hopefully you can see. Tilt it back. He says, there are very few errors and false doctrines, he says, of which the beginning may not be traced up to unsound views of the corruption of the human nature. Wrong views of a disease will always bring with them wrong views of a remedy. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them the wrong views of the grand antidote and cure for that redemption. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature? God's grace has freed us just enough so that we can choose him. We'll always carry with it wrong views of the grand antidote and cure of that, that corruption. Friends, what is that grand antidote? What is the antidote of this corruption? Salvation, Jesus Christ paying our sin, ultimately to reduce it down in a very simplistic, childlike terms, the antidote is God himself. Right? This is where the doctrine of unconditional election flows from this doctrine of total depravity. That's why we spent so much time on it last Sunday. If man is indeed dead, enslaved, held captive, and blind, then the remedy for all of those conditions must lie outside of himself. Everyone follow the logic? And where does it lie? It lies in God, which leads, leads us to that next section, right? God's sovereignty, that understanding of us, man, in place, praise be to God for his sovereignty and role in salvation. And let us be very clear about that role. Last Sunday, we covered his sovereign choice, which is people bristle at today. And we went all over the Bible to look at God's choice in salvation. He chose those whom he would save, but we also in Scripture that he obviously doesn't treat everyone equally. I encourage you to go back next last week's message to unpack that. That brings us now, here at 920, to a fresh part of the lesson, okay? God's plan for salvation. God's sovereign choice and God's plan for salvation. Then we'll look at his purpose and then we'll quickly look at man's responsibility. And again, against God's providence, we get to piggyback next hour on this responsibility and look at our role in it as the church. It was not planned, but God is good. Now, nowhere is this plan so succinctly stated then in Romans 8, 29 through 30, okay? Romans 8, 29 through 30. 
going to read this. Just follow along in, on your page. You don't have to read it out loud. For those whom he foreknew. Who's the he there, by the way? Who's that? God, thank you for the very shy reply. It's God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, this passage is talking about the process or the plan of salvation in a way that stresses God's sovereignty and direction. Salvation is entirely monergistic. Or we would say the progression of how God brings a person to salvation. And notice first, we have to notice there are five links to this wonderful, wonderful chain. Okay? Point them out for a moment. He foreknew. He predestined, he called, he justified, and glorified. Everyone notice the five links? We'll spend a little bit of time on each of those links. Before we do, let's not dismantle the chain entirely. Let's look at the whole thing, okay? Let's examine it and observe a few things and be blessed by them. Let me ask first, what phrase is repeated in Romans 8, 29 through 30, right? Because students of the Bible, we look for things that repeat. What phrase? He also, thank you, right out the gate. He also, why is, what is, what is important about this phrase? Anyone notice the chain? It's an unbreakable chain, is it not? Once the process begins, he foreknew, it will come to completion. He glorified, right? Those whom God called to salvation will respond and they will be glorified with him in heaven. Friends, this is a promise of the security of salvation that hopefully you're thankful for this morning. He also, in rapid succession, after one, one after another, and you look at the tense of each of this, these phrases, what's the tense there? Grammatically. Past tense. What's conveyed in that? It is. There's a finality. There's a completeness. There's an unstoppable force about this chain. Salvation of a believer is written in eternity past. So that who is carrying out, out each of these four actions, as we've articulated already, there's one person. And that's God himself. That's why this is important. God is solely responsible for salvation. Romans 8, 29-30. It's monergistic in nature. The singular act of one. Now we're going to unmistakably note in this chain in a moment that repentant faith is that first step that we do take in response to God's calling us. But what do we also know about this in the Bible is that even that, that faith that we have to respond to God comes from who? Is it from within us? Can a leopard change his spot or an Ethiopian his skin? We are unable, we're unwilling to seek God and trust in him. So even the capacity to trust in him is imparted to us. He grants that faith. Let's just look at this more closely to have this etched into our minds. 
One is he foreknew. God's plan for salvation, he foreknew. Look at Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, other supported passages, 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, they saw it with their own eyes. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and what church? Foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, that, that's an important predetermined and foreknowledge. We're going to park on that in a moment and be very precise with how we understand foreknowledge. Amos 3.2, you only have I chosen, talking about Israel, and among all the families of the earth. Now, for doctrinal purposes, it's important that we examine this word foreknowledge, right? And do so a little more closely. And why is that the case? is because this right here is where much of the discussion goes awry. This ministry, Equip Ministry, Adult Sunday School Hour, is all about being precise in our understanding. Foreknowledge in that vein comes from the Greek word prognosko. Everyone say it? Prognosko. Just felt good saying it, right? Okay, prognosko. Well, I don't know if does it mean. It's a Greek cognate of the preposition pro beforehand. And gnosko, to know in an intimate way. Prognosko. Now, often, this is why we say the discussion right here typically goes awry. It did with Jacobus Arminius. Often new believers may think that foreknowledge merely means knowing something beforehand. Right? As if our lives are a movie of which God already knows the ending. Okay. Well, he does know the ending. But this word is far deeper than that and carries far more water than just that. And that's why we say precision, precision is key. This word foreknowledge, even as you see in Acts chapter 2.22, implies an intimate knowledge of the details of our life. Why? It's because God is sovereign over our lives. It's more than simply knowing what will happen. It is planning what will happen before we are even born. When we say that Christ was nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men, according to the foreknowledge of God, there's a reason interjected there is his predetermined plan, right? It wasn't that God just simply looked down the quarters of time and saw that Jesus would be crucified by a mob. He's very clear in his word, even going back to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, right? This was God's plan all along since Genesis 3.15. There would be one of the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent, right? And from that promise onward, and even on to eternity past, this has always been a part of his plan. Not only that his son would come and die, but also that there would be a select and certain group of individuals 
of which he has chosen to be his own. Why is this an important discussion? And why is it an important distinction? Again, we have to define our terms with precision. And the reason that this is important, and in the spirit of being precise, many, many people try to explain God's choice of some for salvation by holding this notion and idea that simply due to God's foreknowledge, He looked down the corridor of time and He saw who would believe, and those are the people that He chose to save. That him choosing who would be saved was based upon him seeing those of their own volition and accord would choose him. Now friends, that is, to summarize that, that's not biblical. And it's not biblical due to the very important tenet that we covered last Sunday with the depravity of man and why we parked the car in that field for so long. Remember what J.C. Ryle wrote that we just read earlier. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with it wrong views of the grand antidote and cure for that corruption. This view of foreknowledge that many people have assumes that man has the capacity to seek God and has the capacity to believe on him on his own. Well, this violates the fact that unregenerate man is totally depraved, enslaved to his sin, dead spiritually, and will therefore never, ever seek God of their own accord. So in effect, those who would adhere to this notion of sovereignty, yes, God's sovereign in salvation, but when you talk about it a little more, you realize you have very different understandings of this notion of sovereignty. If it's simply that God looked down history and saw people who would believe, well, friends, that is a massively, massively undermining the sovereignty and grace of God and salvation. And when you undermine the sovereignty and grace of God and salvation, brothers and sisters, that's always a big deal in the eyes of God. He foreknew. It was part of his predetermined plan, Acts 2. That's the intimate knowledge conveyed there. Secondly, he predestined. Ephesians 1, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. A few verses later, verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. He predestined, which means he previously ordained, he previously appointed to some position. God's election of Christians, he chose us before the foundation of the world, right? Ephesians 1.4, entails him predestining us to something. And in this case, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Hence, church, election and pre destination in this context refers to God's decision to save someone, his choosing of them. I want you to also notice in Ephesians as well, please notice how Paul stresses and qualifies God's plan and initiation or initiative of redemption with the phrase, 
he predestined according to what? To the purpose of whose will? To the purpose of his will. He predestined according to the purpose of or kind intention of his will. Friends, God is not constrained and not manipulated by any outside force, is he? No, his kind intention, his will is poured out. His grace, his goodness is poured out on those on on who he has chosen. And he does so in Jesus Christ. He foreknew, he predestined, but he also called. He called. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 4. Foreknew, predestined, called. We're going to spend some time making sure we're precise with this word as well. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Made us alive. It's passive. He's acting upon us. We'll talk about that in a moment. Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, solely responsible, made you alive together with Him. John 6.44, big, big verse. No one comes to, the, to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If you ever want to circle a word, underline a word, make sure you're precise about a word, make it be the word draw there in John 6.44. The reason I say that is that we have to take a moment to make sure that we accurately understand this drawing activity. This divine drawing activity of which Jesus referred to can not simply be referred or reduced down to what theologians call provenient grace that we discussed earlier. Which is somehow that the power to come to Christ is allegedly dispensed to all of mankind, thus enabling everyone to either accept or reject the gospel according to their own will alone. We've already seen what's wrong with that understanding, right? Scripture indicates that no free will exists in human nature. Why? It's because man is, to hearken back, enslaved, spiritually dead. So that we are unable to believe apart from God's empowerment. Very, very important. 2 Timothy 1.9 Talking about God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. 2 Timothy 1.9 Now friends, this calling is not a general invitation to sinners to believe the gospel and be saved, but refers to God's effectual call of the elect to salvation. While whosoever will, will may come to the Father, it's only those whom the Father gives the ability to will move towards Him and come to Him in the first place. Until that moment, God moves upon you, monergistic, you are free to do what you will. But that human will is in bondage to sin until liberated by God Himself. Everyone follow? 
So friends, this drawing is selective. It's efficacious. It it produces the desired effect upon those whom God has sovereignly chosen for salvation. Those that God has foreknown and predestined will believe because God sovereignly determined the result from eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1. You see, so much of the controversy around this particular doctrine simply lies in a differing interpretation of this word to draw. In a nutshell, not to overcomplicate it or get lost in the weeds. Let's stay above the weeds for a moment, okay? In a nutshell, this is boiled down to whether the person is either active or passive in this drawing process. Let me explain. Does God woo the sinner so that he makes the gospel so attractive to them that the sinner chooses whether or not to respond to that attraction, right? Much like a man might be attracted to a woman and then decides whether or not he's going to respond to that attraction. This is the very Arminian view of drawing or or calling. Perhaps you've had those conversations. I know I have. Our position at North Lake, the Reformed position, lands on a different view here because it relies on the consistency in the whole of God's Word. When one looks throughout the Bible, this Greek word to draw or to woo always conveys the idea of being drawn as being, a, as being passive in the process. Not acting or cooperating, but unregenerate, dead, enslaved, unable, unwilling individuals being acted upon. Okay, Much like a sword that's removed from a sheath. Right, the the sword the, the sword and sheath had had nothing to do with being pulled from the sheath. Right, it had to be drawn out. The drawing closed of of drapes. The drapes did not contribute it to contributed to closing. R. C. Sproul used to use this object lesson. Uh, perhaps you've read it and heard of it, where he would describe someone standing at the top of a well and and screaming down into the well. And saying, here, water, 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 right? And just begging this water to come up out of the well. But that's not how water is extracted from a well, is it? No, the water is inert. There's no capacity to, to bring itself out until a bucket is lowered and someone outside of the water draws it up. And that, the object object lesson was conveying, that's exactly the nature of this word. It's We are passive. He draws us. It's efficacious. It's effectual. That is the drawing here. You have passages like James chapter 2. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally, same word here, drag you into court? Book of Acts uses the same word in a similar way. Chapter 16. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. Acts 21.30, and taking hold of Paul, they, what? What's the word there? Dragged him out of the temple. Now friends, in the book of Acts, Paul's, Paul and Silas' captors didn't try to entice them. Didn't try to entice them to come before the magistrates and then woo them into the jail cell, right? That's not what hap- happened. 
No, they were taken hold of and unilaterally drug into the jail. That is the nature of this word. We are passive. This is exactly what divine grace that God has done for us and will do for all those that he has foreknown and predestined. We are dead, enslaved, and he acts upon us and draws us in the most gloriously efficacious way to himself. Jesus' point in John 6.44 in the first place is that people cannot come to him unless they are compelled to come to the Father, unless God drags them. If you are in Christ this morning, that is exactly how you came to Christ. So that salvation is all of His grace so that no one may, what? Boast. We have no grounds for boasting when you understand this biblical view of salvation in this way. God's Spirit didn't drag you kicking and screaming against your will. He changed your will before you came. And had He not changed the disposition of your heart, had He not put in your heart a desire for Christ, guess what? You would still be an alien and stranger to the kingdom of God. Does this not just intensify how much and to what degree and intensity of which you marvel at the mercy of God? I have no grounds for boasting. God foreknew, He predestined, He called. There are several elements to this miracle. And God imparts to us several things of which we will have to note. We're going to push the gas pedal really hard at this juncture, okay? So if you're not buckled, you're being unsafe, A, go ahead and buckle up, okay? We've got to move. One, praise be to God because He washes us and regenerates us. We were dead, He makes us alive. Perhaps we will isolate a Sunday just to talk about these elements of which He dispenses. Titus 2, I mean Titus 3, 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Pastor will expound upon this when he looks at the ministry of the Holy Spirit over the next few weeks. Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit with you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. He washes us and makes us alive, gives us new life. We are born again, regenerated. Secondly, God gives us repentance, which is required in this miracle of salvation. It's not something we muster up of our own volition and will. We're unable unless he imparts it to us. Acts eleven eighteen. Well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. 
If you have turned to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that is an expression of the mercy of God in your life. Otherwise, you would still be running headlong into sin, into the pit of hell itself, where you are naturally and intrinsically marching with every fiber of your being apart from God's grace. 2 Timothy 2.25, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them what, church? Repentance that leading to the knowledge of the truth. Not only does he give repentance, but he gives faith. Lord, thank you for this gift. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 29. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, it's been granted to you, but also to suffer for his sake. Lastly, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, our memory verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what, church? A gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may... Thank you for being awake. Hopefully you're going through the Fundamentals of the Faith book. You'll notice one statement and quote. I figured it's worth reading. John MacArthur writes the following. When we accept the finished work of Christ on our behalf, we act by faith supplied by God's grace. That is the supreme act of human faith. The, the act which, though it is ours, is primarily God's. It, his gift to us out of His grace. A person who is spiritually dead cannot even make a decision of faith unless God first breathes into him the breath of spiritual life. Faith is simply breathing the breath that God's grace supplies, yet the paradox is that we must exercise it and bear the responsibility if we do not. We'll talk about this paradox in a moment in closing. These things he's imparted to us. Foreknew, predestined, called, all of which encompassing washing, regenerating, grantance of repentance and faith, and flowing from that, the chain, the glorious chain, the shiny chain continues. He justified, he made us right with himself. He declared us righteous in his sight. Romans 3.24, justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Lastly, he glorified, right? Glorified. Now, church family, has this glorification, new bodies, heavenly bodies, renewed bodies, has it already happened for you and I? No, some of you are feeling your back right now and achy joints and you're saying, no, I can attest it has not happened yet. And we're faced with a reminder of that every single day. And yet, the way it's conveyed in Romans chapter 8 is what? It's already a done deal. Past tense. Past tense of a future event stressing its certainty. To God, according to his plan, sovereign over all things, it's as if it has already happened, even though it is yet future. Second Thessalonians 2.14 It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Second Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. There is held out for us renewal, restoration, not only in the positional spiritual sense, but in every literal experiential sense as we spend eternity with him in a perfect state of heaven. How many of you look forward to that day? God's people do, in fact, say amen. God's sovereign purpose for salvation. Three things here. He saved us for his own glory. He saved us according to the purposes and kindness of his own will. And I already stated for his own glory. So just two, okay? Let's look at them. Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Such a wonderful phrase that is just a beating drum in Ephesians 1, right? Which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. It's all for his glory. And according to his purpose and kindness of his own will, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus himself, according to his kind intention of his will. 2 Timothy 1, 9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We have to close with, and this is going to parlay into next hour. Well, what is man's responsibility? One is the responsibility of the lost. We mentioned earlier something about a paradox, right? And there are several paradoxes in the Bible. And why do we have paradoxes in the Bible? Anyone know? We know what a paradox is, right? We, this, 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 um, this reality, the, the enormity of this reality that's just really kind of hard for us to comprehend and wrap our minds around. God is solely responsible for salvation, but yet there's still this responsibility in man. And how are those reconciled with the two? Well, friends, there are some paradoxes of which we simply lead to the mind of God. And you know what? We have such an enormous, big, glorious, infinite God that we can expect there to be paradoxes, right? Our finite minds can un- understand and comprehend every component. And and that's hard for us as human beings who want everything nice and tidy and nice logical boxes. There are some things I I leave to the mind of God. That will make sense later, right? It's the responsibility of the lost. Our pastor will convey this next hour in in a look at evangelism, right? While faith and repentance is a gift from God, there's still this responsibility of the lost to exercise that faith. John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Second Thessalonians 1.3 Dealing out God retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel 
of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of his power. Matthew 23, you have these woe passages, right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to to, to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you are unwilling. John five thirty nine. you search the scriptures because you think that in so doing you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. There's still this responsibility of man to exercise a faith that's given to them. Paradox? Yes. For us, what is not a paradox as believers is our responsibility. And ours is twofold. One is we have to be faithful to open our mouths, right? Acts 9, 15. Go, for he has chosen, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Speaking of Paul there, Romans 10, 14. Really the most succinct passages, passage on this responsibility. How then will they call on him and who they have not believed? And how will they believe on him whom they have not heard? God has interwoven in this process that he desires and has orchestrated and designed the proclamation of the gospel to be the instrument by which he imparts faith and repentance to believers. How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There has to be a hearing of the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And secondly is prayer. Evangelism and prayer. You want to know what your responsibility is? There it is. Romans 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God Prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul was praying for people's salvation. Brothers and sisters, do you and I do the same thing? Do we pray? And in so praying, do we simultaneously be faithful to open out our mouths? Open up our mouths. One of the grand themes of the book of Jonah is salvation. Jonah 2.9 is of the Lord. If you take anything away from the book of Jonah, salvation is from the Lord. And so we evangelize and we pray. We'll unpack that in just a moment more, more extensively. What should this doctrine produce in us? Just leave you with this. One is hearts of gratitude. Secondly, it should compel praise and worship for His glorious grace. This morning, if you are in Christ, it should grant you such a sweet assurance of salvation that this is an unbreakable chain. That those who he foreknew, he predestined and called and justified and glorified. That is a process and plan that is unbreakable. Are you assured of that this morning? Or do you live in a perpetual state of back and forth fear that somehow you will lose and no longer possess this wonderful gift of redemption? Should also compel us to 
honor the Lord with lives that are holy and blameless. Why? Because we want to honor this one who has saved us, and it should promote a faithfulness to evangelize and pray. Now, friends, if we're going to do any of those things, well, we need a lot of help, do we not? In that vein, I want to encourage you to come back next Sunday because we will look at pneumatology, at the person of the Holy Spirit. Right? God has grant the helper that you need, John 14, 6. Okay? And his name is the Holy Spirit. Okay? We'll clear up a lot of confusion in that space as well. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We A lot of wonderful, minute, but sweet and meaningful and worthwhile details of which to sift through in this trunk known as the doctrine of salvation. In all of this, Lord, I, I pray again, just as we began, it would not be to the end that we become theological astute individuals who are able to argue a sad position in an unkind and unloving way. Lord, instead, we pray that it would produce a, again, stirred and warm and delighted affections for for yourself in us, that we would be more faithful and fervent worshipers of you. But Lord, it would also produce in us a tenderness towards those who are yet not in Christ. We don't pretend to know the individuals of which in your sovereign plan you've foreknown and predestined and are sure to call and justify and glorify. We do not know these things. So the responsibility you've granted to all of us is to be faithful in every context to do two things. And that's to evangelize. And to go forward evangelizing in the spirit of prayer and dependence that God is the only one who actually saves an individual and makes them your own. Lord, that's relieving. That's comforting. That there's no amount of articulation of a said position and message that that makes someone's salvation contingent upon our appropriate expounding of a message. Lord, we, we are a bit like Moses. We stumble over our words, and yet you redeem those conversations all the time, and you bring people to yourself. This, that is your doing. That is the glorious God that you are. And we thank you this morning. Help us now to be attentive next hour. Energize our songs unto you. Be with our pastor as he opens up your word. May there be clarity and precision there. And Lord, may you help us eternalize it and obey it to your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.